Thank you very much, Anthony. Um, I, I, uh, I stopped uh, lecturing with notes some years ago because of uh, the web and the internet, uh, which I prefer to call bidirectional digital media because I think it captures the particular quality of this technological assemblage. And I'll, I'll return and talk about that a bit uh, because I think you know, it's a very generous introduction. You're here, I'm here. So much is, is virtual now, so much is augmented reality. Uh, it, it sort of ill behooves me not to try and extemporize and to speak spontaneously since I've bothered to come all the way from London. Uh, and you've come from wherever you've come from as well. So here we all are together. And there has to be something special about that. And there has to be something that can't be reproduced or recaptured. The French have the expression uh, esprit de les escaliers, which is a big problem if you just extemporize, because when you finish, or, or, or you know, in the middle of the night in my boutique hotel room in uh, Nijmegen, I'm going to sit upright and think that's everything I wanted to say. Then, so we're going to have an opportunity for some questions at the end, and Anthony's going to pass you a cube. Uh, to pass it. And, and hopefully the questions, if, if I failed to, to say what I wanted to say, hopefully in the Q&A session I'll be able to, to dredge it up at that point. Uh, I was invited to, to contribute to the conference, uh, invited to give something of a keynote or, or an opening thing. I said, I, I'm not really in a, a position to talk about what some people have been calling neo-modernism or the kind of renewal of interest in modernism in in anything but a personal and an experiential way. I mean, I'm, I, uh, I'm not really a literary critic. Uh, and, and actually, I'm, I'm not really a big reader of fiction. I, I, I found it very difficult as a writer to read fiction since I began writing it seriously. For, for me, uh, one of the kind of heaviest bits of lifting a writer, uh, a writer of fiction has to do, though again, I may want to qualify this in what I say, is to try and get his or her readers to suspend disbelief in, in what on the face of it are often lies, uh, certainly in terms of their kind of mindset. You know, it's about illusion. It's about saying what is not in some way, like a kind of colossal... And I always sort of think that, that's an effort. That's a muscular effort, that physical suspension of disbelief. It's like being a seal balancing a ball on the tip of your nose. And the last thing you want to do at the end of a hard day of being a seal balancing a ball on the tip of your nose is go home and watch some other poor seal doing it as well. It's very exhausting because you, you know what's, what's going on. I don't read a lot of fiction. Uh, I suppose the other thing is the kind of anxiety of influence as, uh, as defined by Harold Bloom. Very kind of unpopular view of uh, how, how, what writers are up to, uh, what they're doing. It, it, it so strongly implies both the canonical and a kind of Oedipal agon between, you know, younger, probably male writers and their older daddies. So that's not a very kind of popular... But, you know, the sad fact of the matter is it kind of works for me. Uh, and uh, you can only speak from your own experience. So I think there's, there's two things I want to kind of deal with initially. One is, you know, why I think I took the modernist turn 
Uh, and, and just to sort of qualify what, what, what Anthony was saying in his introduction, uh, I am a modernist. I don't, I don't think it's not that I'm influenced by modernism. I'm a modernist writer. Uh, I don't think modernism ever ended. I don't really believe in postmodernism. Postmodernism is something in architecture. Yeah? This building's a bit of a postmodernist building. It's got stupid little bits of render that belong on other buildings stuck onto its facade to try and make it look like something else. You know, postmodernism is, is, a, is a perennial problem. You know, those of us who understand the history of the novel, of course, know that books like The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy were pre-postmodernism, since, since they deconstructed the form before it came into being. So there's something wrong there with the ascription of postmodernism to literature at all. I don't think it has it belongs there. And I think postmodern is a lazy ascription. You know, the English literary critic Robert Adams said, you know. Most cultural eras in the West last about 500 years, whether it's classicism, the early modern period. You know, why would modernism suddenly stutter to a halt after about 20 years? It doesn't really kind of make sense in that way. We'll return to that. Um, influence. Yes, Joyce. Yes, Elliot. Yes, Louis Ferdinand Céline and his ellipses, his punctuation, his anger, the kind of pulsion of his prose. Uh, yes, yes to everything, yes to influence, yes to literature itself as a uh, palimpsest, you know, uh, you know what, what is it that Larkin says about uh, religion and Christianity, the great sort of worn brocade of it. We could say that of literature as well. Uh, it, it seems now, you know, and, and Anthony raised Ballard's terminal moraine. There's, you know, if you're not familiar with what a moraine is, it's all of the stuff a glacier kind of pulls up in its progress and then deposits at the end. Uh, and yes, you know, uh, the terminal moraine uh, discloses the fact that literature was much more of a collective enterprise than we might have imagined. Yes, the novel kind of comes of age along with the classical symphony in the 19th century. It's a child of romanticism as much as it is of the mechanized press and the capacity to bind books. It relates both to the codex uh, and to the individual who is like a codex, who is like a uh, the individual who believes her thoughts are impenetrable to others. The individual who sits and silently reads. You know, re remember the shock that uh, Augustine of Hippo uh, experienced when he came upon Bishop Ambrose reading silently in his garden because it was the first time that he had ever seen anybody reading silent because, of course, uh, before the early modern era, most reading was done allowed because it was a collective enterprise. So yes to all of that and, 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 and yes to, to influence and, and, and yes to the, to the agon of influence and yes to the collective quality of this palimpsest of literature. So why would it break so conveniently into epochs and adherence? And I, I'm not criticizing you as academics. You can do that to yourselves. Uh, but, but I think there is a tendency in academia to 
want to be able to understand the engagement between a writer and a text in a kind of determinate way. You know, I always think when you read a lot of criticism that you, you come away, not that I read that much, but you come away thinking, you get the impression that the person who writes it imagines that a writer of fiction somehow manages to sit down and plan the entire work of fiction before they've written it. But that would be a kind of contradiction in terms because they would have written the book. It's a bit like a kind of Borgesian kind of fictional conceit itself. You know, it's a bit like uh, the man who wrote Don Quixote. You know, you, you would have had to have written the book before you'd written the book in order to plan it at that level and to display these influences that thoroughly. The influences don't really influence in quite that way. It's more, I think, that they create certain kinds of conceptual space uh, as well as certain kinds of techniques. And, you know, my, my, I think up until uh, 2008 when I published a book called Walking to Hollywood, I, you know, I have a kind of er, a couple of early pieces that, that more or less represent in, in my oeuvre what the atrocity exhibition did for Ballard, a short story called Scale, which really sets out a lot of my thinking quite early on in the 1990s, and it's only about 12,000 words, but what I try and do in that story is compress all literary genres. Uh, it's a sort of colossal mise en abime. I try and compress every single kind of literary genre in about 15,000 years of human history into 12,000 words. Uh, but apart from that, you know, while I felt I was responding to what I would think of as a modernist impulse, the truth of the matter is a lot of my fiction was at least traditional and classic in this sense. It had characters, uh, it had a third-person impersonal narrator, it had a determinate narrative structure, uh, and... Uh, it, 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 it used what I would call constructed metaphor, uh, and I'll, I'll elaborate on that in a minute. Uh, and, and, and it also uh, was written in, in English. Most fiction is written, and actually Ulysses is written as well in the simple past. It's not written in the continuous present. It's, it's written in the simple past. Um, the influence that, that J.G. Ballard uh, ha has had on me as a, a, a writer and as a person is pretty much incalculable. And, you know, Bloom says that the anxiety of influence, you know, good writers, Auden put it another way, he used to scribble in the margin of things he'd read, the acronym GETS, G-E-T-S, which stood for good enough to steal. Uh, you know, and I, I think the rubric here is that you know, Bloom thinks that a kind of bad writer slavishly imitates and, 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 and a good writer, in a sense, steals, purloins the goods uh, that the agon has produced and deliberately misrepresents them in order to express their own originality. And, um, you know, I had the kind of marvellous experience, really, as, as, as a writer of, of reading Ballard's novels. I used to go to the library, the public library, when I was a kid, and Galantz, who are a big publisher in, in London, published Ballard in the, in the 60s and 70s, and, and the books would all, all the science fiction books would be bound in yellow jackets, and as a kind of 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old boy, I would just go to the library and just get the yellow books, 
because they were sci-fi. So I read sci-fi indiscriminately, you know, whether it was kind of the sort of barely repressed Ayn Randian right-wing fantasies of somebody like Robert Heinlein or the kind of AI programmatics of a hard sci-fi writer like Asimov or these weird books by this man Ballard that I just read indiscriminately. I'd read quite a lot of Ballard by the time I was 14. It was like a kind of fever dream of my own adolescence. Uh, and I, I then reread Ballard. It, 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 I would say towards the, the early to mid 80s, you know, Ballard, who had been a relatively uh, you know, cult sci-fi writer, beginning to sort of, le- you know, the, wor- the word was getting out that there was something remarkable there. Of course, people, aficionados, had known it from the early 70s. And I reread a lot of Ballard then. And, and really, if you haven't read it, Ballard's introduction to his 1973 trans- French translation of Crash is Ballard's you know, kind of literary credo. It's where he sets out his stall. It's where he defines the kind of key conceptual elements to his work as he sees them, these concepts of the death of affect, which he sees as a result of something he calls the overlit realm of the 20th century that exists at the intersection between technology, psychopathology, and modernity, uh, and also his concept of what he called inner space. Uh, and, and for him, inner space was, in a sense, the, Freud, the reversal of the Freudian uh, paradigm of the, of the latent and the manifest. So if you're familiar with a novel like Crash, In Crash, Ballard uh, takes the phenomenon of the kind of mass deaths that really were occurring on on the roads of Western countries in the late 1960s and early 70s. I think figures in Britain were there were 25,000 deaths a year from traffic accidents. And he, as it were, reveals the collective psychopathology that's involved in what on the face of it appears to be a transport system, but is really a kind of, you know, willed collective death drive in in that way. Uh, And Ballard was also responding, for him, the kind of climacteric is is the abandonment by the US of their manned space program. His novels are full of images of the gantries of Saturn V rockets covered in rust or wreathed with creepers because they've fallen into desuetude. And, you know, he established in his novels of the 60s and 70s, a uh, sense of, uh, you know, I guess what for, for Derrida becomes hauntology, a sense of the future looking back at the past and leaking back into the past. Uh, actually, I was just apropos something else, so I'll, I'll get to it in due course, was uh, reading... M. John Harrison's introduction to a new edition of Ballard's uh, Drought. Uh, the Drought, just on the way, one of his environmental disaster novels of the late 60s. And, uh, and Harrison was saying, uh, characterizing Ballard, of course, who said that you know, all he was interested in was the next five minutes. And Harrison rather eloquently puts this as um, uh, dreaming, dreaming, fo- dreaming backwards. Uh, in some way, and he he remarks on this dreaming backwards and and a kind of metaphysics of the near future, if you like, a 
Ballard, in fact, was explicitly interested in Alfred Jarry's pataphysics, the idea of, uh, as it were, occult explanation, uh, ordinary explanation, occult explanations for, for credible phenomena in that way. Uh, you'll be familiar with Jarry's uh, The Crucifixion, considered as a downhill bicycle race, which, of course, Ballard adapted to be um, the assassination of, of Kennedy considered as a motor race or whatever it was. And Harrison, in this introduction, was saying that myself and uh, Martin Amos were indeed Ballard's imitators, as he puts it. He said, he said writers like self and Amos mimic Ballard and produce Swiftian satiric inversions within the context of this uh, dreaming backwards. And, and, you know, you might think, you know, I mean, this, this was written, this piece, about four or five years ago. Uh, Ballard died, died ten years ago. Uh, I'm in my late 50s. You know, in terms of, of Harold Bloom's anxiety of influence, that's about as bad as it gets, frankly, to be told in your 50s that you're a, an imitator of, a, of another writer. Uh, but you know what? I couldn't give a shit. Uh, I'm proud I am proud, uh, and, and when Ballard was alive, uh, he basically anointed me as his successor, and I'm perfectly happy with that. Uh, I don't have any problem with it at all for reasons that I, I, I will enlarge upon. I mean, I do think I do some things that are different to Ballard, but I think for very particular reasons, it's become impossible in the Bloomian sense for a writer to kill Daddy anymore and transcend... Uh, influences in that way. So I don't, do not mind in that sense because I think that, that uh, you know, uh, that, that what Ballard identified about the novel uh, in, in this introduction to Crash in the early 70s holds true. Uh, and it had a huge impact on me as a young man, as a young writer. Basically, Ballard said the 19th century novel with its uh, omnipotent, omniscient narrator, third-person impersonal narrator who, who you know, looks at the, the, the lives of, of, of the characters that, that he or she has created, subspecie eternitatis from the perspective of eternity, is able to move back and forth in timelines, is able to go into their minds and explore the subtle, you know, Jamesian veities that they're engaged in. This is a parlor game. This is, a, this, is a, uh, this is a an artistic form of stasis and recursion. Uh, uh, and, and it bears no relation to the 20th century whatsoever, none at all. Uh, it, 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 it bears as much relation to the 20th century as a kind of minuet does to the 1960s. Uh, and, and who is this third person in personal narrator? I mean, clearly it, it's a, uh, a kind of repurposed god uh, you know, you could say that in, in the 20th century that, you know, one of, the, of, the, of the, the many sequels of the linguistic turn in philosophy that occurred in the early 20th century was hermeneuticists and textual analysts, some of whom will be in this room, uh, decided to start treating texts as if they were worlds because, uh, you know, metaphysics was no longer an option, so you could now discourse on the epistemic and ontic qualities of fiction instead. And, you know, 
Ballard felt that it was no longer the role of the writer to be a sort of dirigiste who's able to direct these characters, a kind of godlike or directorial figure in this way, but rather it was the job of the writer to open themselves up, to, to use their psyche as a kind of test bed or a kind of petri dish in which to allow the fecundity of reality to culture itself in that way. You had to kind of turn your head over. You're very close to, to William Burroughs for a while, and certainly the atrocity exhibition bears the marks of the cut-up and fold-in techniques that Geis, Brian Geisen and, and Burroughs developed. As I say, I had great good fortune. I, I read this man's books. I, I, I was hugely influenced by that introduction to Crash. I don't think I really acted on it except in terms of my subject matter. And I take it on the chin, what M. John Harrison says. I think that's right. Swiftian satiric inversions played out within the context of Ballard's insights about what was happening with the novel form. But I didn't take the fundamental step to really distance and break with the 19th century novel and break with ideas of naturalism and what we might call social realism uh, quite at that point, except in one kind of important philosophic sense. My first collection of stories, the quantity theory of insanity, which is in part a kind of, again, Swiftian satiric inversion of uh, the application of, quanti of quantitative theories to the social sciences. So, uh, you know, the quantity theory of insanity is in part a play on Milton Friedman's quantity theory of money. In part, it's a, a play on Durkheim's famous study of, of suicide. It's a story cycle. Uh, the stories are interrelated, uh, but they're ontologically on different levels. You know, some character appears in one story that was on television in another story. So there's no... And what I was trying to drive towards there was a kind of theory of truth that wasn't about a Stendhalian comparison, as you normally get in social realism. Art is the mirror of life. I'll hold it up. You can see yourselves in it. But was seeking to establish a different kind of truth function, really a, an existential and phenomenological truth function in respect of, of fiction. But as I say, still, we're still in the simple past. We've still got an omniscient narrator. The themes and ideas of the fiction might be quite odd. You know, I've got a kind of dystopic future fantasy when, you know, uh, chimpanzees and humans have swapped places or the world's been flooded or all this sort of stuff quite Ballardian in some ways. But for me, there came a certain point writing these books when basically, I can't put it any more clearly than this, it became impossible for me any longer to write a sentence like, she went to the cafe. I just couldn't write that sentence anymore. Who's saying it? Who's telling you that? And, and why? And, you know, the opening of the Divine Comedy in you know, my middle years, I found myself in a dark wood. I found myself in a dark, simple past. Because, I don't know about you, my life's always like now, really. I mean, there's a degree of 
analepsis and prolepsis as a degree of sort of thinking, oh, I've seen somebody who looks a bit like you before, I've been in a... Yeah. And I have a kind of... I probably have a kind of random access memory of about the last two or three years. But, you know, there's some students here, but quite a few of you look to be pushing my age, and you'll be familiar with the fact that your psyche really is pretty much Theseus's ship, isn't it? You know, you'd be pretty unrecognizable to the you of seven or eight years ago because you're just not thinking about the same stuff. Uh, and and I, maybe, you know, you, you might think the kind of big innovations in a, in a writer or an artist's life would occur early on, but this was, it seems to me, a very middle-aged insight and, a, and something like I would have been hard-pushed to apprehend at that kind of uh, visceral level, not at an intellectual level, and, until I was the age I was when it began to happen to me, which was about 12 years ago, 13 years ago. Yeah, I mean, it probably didn't help that I'd had a kind of late push uh, and had been reading a lot of modernist writers at the time as well. But as I say, the, the groundwork had been set many years before. I, uh, so there's the simple past, can't really be doing with that. And there's also what I would call constructed metaphor, which uh, all modernists, of the high modernists, had a suspicion about constructed metaphor. Kafka probably most obviously. But there's a certain kind of contemporary literary fiction, and I'm sure it's written in many other languages besides English, but I'm familiar with the English rhythm of it. Uh, and, and it goes like this, it goes... Dumpty 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 dum, simile. Dumpty 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 dum, metaphor. Dumpty 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 dum. So you know what I'm talking about, right? As if, like, it would see. Again, no. Just as my life doesn't take place in the simple past, nor did it seem to me that the metaphors were psychologically realistic at all. Nobody actually thinks in metaphors. Nobody ever walks into a room and, and sees a telephone on a bed and thinks, that looks like a severed head. It is a severed head, not a telephone. Telephone, severed head, severed head, telephone. You might think, oh, is that a severed head? Oh, no, it's a phone. But you wouldn't construct the metaphor to prettify your thought at the time of the fact. So what is the metaphor doing in the literary fiction exactly? It's to suggest what really a kind of dualism, a kind of, it's responding, it seems to me, to a Cartesian bicameral sense of the mind itself as, as representer and representation. But again, I live in the present. I don't tend to, to think in metaphor myself at all. And not only that, I'm absolutely convinced that the contents of my mind seven or eight years ago would be unknowable to me in all sorts of important senses. If I had some magnificent machine that could somehow transliterate psychic content directly, I wouldn't know what was going on. So when I came to write these books, I wanted to put that into action. I wanted to write books that I felt people would feel strange about the psychic content that was in them. Uh, they would feel a degree... Again, if you think about you know, historic writing generally, it tends to be... Uh, if you think about something like Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall, well, I'm not knocking Hilary Mantel's series about 
Thomas Cromwell in it, very fine writing and all of that. But when I was reading it, I thought, this is all stuff I sort of know already about that period. She's constructed her vision of the past within what she already assumes we know, okay? So I didn't come across anything where I thought I had absolutely no... And this is totally strange and, and alien to me in some way. So I wanted to get that. I was pretty convinced that the minds of the past, let alone the minds of the present, were estranging in that way. I wanted to do away with constructed metaphor. I wanted to abandon the third-person impersonal narrator, and I wanted to be in the continuous present. So that all seemed to me to happen at a kind of visceral psychological level, to be true to myself as a writer. I could no longer write in the way. It was not a choice. It was a compulsion really. It just felt like that, that way. Um, well, I might read you a passage so you can see what it's like if you're not familiar with it. Uh, he does the police in different voices, uh, as you will see. And my own literary career has coincided with the rise of the public reading, which was not so popular in the 1980s, began to come to the fore in the 1990s. And again, you know, it seems to me the novel, the form, is a child of an analogue technology to some extent. It's a, a child of, a, of an era when we didn't have the kind of high-speed communications and transit networks that displace us in the way that they do now. And it's important to me that the uh, texts be readable and be audible in that sense. Um, I don't know what else to look out for. I think I'll just read you the passage and then maybe talk a little bit about the content of the trilogy uh, and then return to issues of modernism because it's really when looking at the content of the trilogy, in a sense, uh, I don't want to get into Sontalgian arguments about what's content and what's style, but what it's about, in a way, rather than content, might be a better way of putting it, uh, in discussing the content of the trilogy, I think I can return at that point to talk a bit more about what I think is going on with modernism and uh, why I think that the modernist era never really ended. Um, in fact, we're still in it. And, and, and actually, it's going to see us out. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Umbrella. You don't really need to know anything except that it's uh, 1902. Uh, we're in the mind of a 14-year-old of a girl called Audrey Death. Not as uncommon an English name as you might imagine. When I was looking around for the name for the family in this trilogy of novels, I was looking for a common English noun uh, that is also a, an English name but has a great deal of resonance, uh, not unlike the name self, for example. Uh, so Audrey Death, and, and in this passage, she's the, the, she lives with her father actually in Fulham, which is an inner but West London suburb. Uh, and for some reason, her father, who, who goes by the name, the sobriquet of Rothschild Death, uh, is a rather sort of grandiloquent character has taken his, his young daughter up to the West End of London on an errand of some kind. Umbrella. 
getting down at Charing Cross, still sucking her pear drop, Audrey turns from the sooty black drain pipe of Nelson's column to be put upon by phosphorine, the remedy of kings, and player's navy cut, momentarily sandwiched between two sandwich men and once freed, engulfed by the hubbub of the afternoon crowds, clerks and shop walkers released for their half-day dodge and jig across the road. One snappy chappy pops under the very shafts of a growler. The cabbie flicks his whip, but the three ladies behind, chandeliers wrapped in muslin, disdain to notice. Bloody oaf! Her father's oath rises above the charivari as he upbraids a ragamuffin, the worse for drink, who cavorts about an organ grinder. A few paces on, Audrey looks back at this man's pillbox hat, his torn and filthy scarlet tunic. He is an old soldier who hops on an ash plant, the empty leg of his trousers flapping. But Sam Death won't be caught napping. He weaves through the throng along the strand, then wheels Audrey round to join a queue who are taking their turn to peer in the eyepiece of a kinetoscope plunked down beside the foyer doors of the old Tivoli. Her head ducked into this comedia, she sees a pretty columbine pirouette around a capering ape. My eye escape? Her gyration not smooth, but jerking forward, then back, the double exposure of the film depicting a meeting with her transparent double. The title card slots in. Miss Lottie Farquhar, appearing nightly in Darker Delights, stalls seats for a limited period, five and sixpence, fully electrified. His paw on her again. Perhaps it'd be agreeable to you if we were to take the back way. Audrey wonders what errand can it be that her father runs for Arnold Collins, his inferior, one he is always treated with amused contempt. The tip of his umbrella fingers the joins between the cobbles as they cross the corner of Covent Garden, ignoring the leather apron porters lounging against the empty crates, ignoring the rotten fruit underfoot, and the Arabs scrabbling for it. The dusk is massing in the corners of the square. Lying in wait. Little Dublin, he remarks casually as they cross Drury Lane. Every third storefront is boarded up with heavy planks. Some scrawled with crim sigils, although, why, there's nothing here to have away. The narrow entries to the godforsaken courts are blocked off with timber bulwarks. And through a gap in one, Audrey sees the lime-washed ghost of a dwelling, some of the condemned tenants standing in front of it, their faces and clothing creased with dirt. They are, she understands, 
too weak, with anger to be dangerous. One boy, her own age, who lolls in a doorway, wears no trousers, no pockets, no pockets to pick. His man-sized shirt torn up past his hips, an idiot grin slitting his potato head. The final shard of the boiled sweet her father had given her snaps between Audrey's teeth. They simper, the free little maids, women of the unfortunate class. Death chews this phrase over before spitting it out more coarsely. Women of the unfortunate class, they'll sell their cells for thruppence, tuppence, or a loaf of stale bread. One makes as if adjusting something in her bodice, a corsage that's invisible. Audrey feels her bubbies prickle and the sweat damp shift still wadded between her thighs. I don't need no snowdrop bands. I need the WC. There are no words to say this. A year or so ago, yes, but not now. Beyond the pub hatch, where the whores have gathered, the street ends in another timber bulwark. This one two stories high and plastered with the pink cheeks, golden curls and frothing white suds of Hudson's soap. To the right of the hoarding, a cranny leads into a long, narrow lane, the carriageway barely wide enough for a cart. The shop fronts to either side antiquated, their many paned and thick mullioned windows plastered with Adson's dirt, as are their horizontal shutters, some of which have been let down to form the basis of stalls. Up above are more wooden bafflers tilting out obliquely from the buildings. Audrey breaks step. Those, death is amused by what's pricked her curiosity, those are mirrors, Audrey. You catch a slice of the Evans, chuck it in the window. Of course, anyone peeping down from on top could see a body stepping into her smalls. Who is he? My father. As they go on, the hush she had not been aware of deepens. The never-ending snarl of the city streets tails away into a single bark tossed from jaws to jaws. A solo motor horn yelping. The alleyway scores deeper into the damp clay. Halting, her father takes a small leather-bound volume from the stack of books on a stall, and as he lifts it to his face, the cover falls open to expose marbled end papers, then drops off altogether, along with several leaves that swipe their way to the ground. At once, a white head pops up from behind the stall. The mad muller! Turns out to be a mousy man, his turban wound out of an Indian shawl. And when he's hauled up his pince-nez from the length of its black ribbon and clipped his nubbin in it, he sees death clearly. (gasps) Oh, it's you, Rothschild, he wheezes. Wordy notes, he has swallowed the consumptive's harmonium. Audrey's father gestures with the broken book. I shall, of course... Recompense you for any loss, Mr. Fellows. 
The mousy man plays a mournful chord. <gasps> Why bother, eh? Listen, he gestures in turn. All done for now and gone. <gasps> done up proper. Done up proper. <gasps> and there's another pump on the pedals. He oughtn't to run on so. He ain't got the breath. Mr. Fellows is tireless. His collar unfastened. His turkey throat gobbles. In the dark recesses of the shop, a caged bird flutter cheeps. Death utters this. As the papers have it, there's substantial compensation available along the way for those with longer leasehold and freehold, naturally. For the first time, Audrey notices her father's ponderousness when he speaks proper. She blushes and to hide her confusion takes a book from the pile on the stall. Sermons of the late Reverend Simon Lecoeur, D.D. <gasps> a little friend of yourn, is she? She has attracted the bookseller's leer. Samuel barks, yes, a special little friend. He grabs her shoulder and twists her upright, pulling everything tight. Tell me, his grip tightens. Has Mr. Beauregard ceased trading yet? The mousy man runs his fever pink eyes the length of Audrey from top to toe before answering disdainfully, Beauregard won't cease till the wrecker's ball drops on that fucking garret. <gasps> Not that he ain't made his arrangements. Fixed up premises with some shonks on the Mile End Road. Death lifts the beetle carapace of his bowler, runs a hand over his damp pate. In that case, he says, I will ascend. He has some uh, merchandise for Brother Collins. Mr. Fellows coughs, wretches, spits derision. Well, you've some for him in all, huh? This is a statement of fact accompanied by the retrieval of a waxed paper, its unfolding, the savage poking of a pinch of snuff into his nostril. Hmm, death mutters. Maybe. He hooks his umbrella over his left arm and gropes deep in his trouser pocket. Audrey stands wrung out and abandoned. Here, he presses a threepence into her palm, hard. You'll find a coffee shop along a ways. Sit tight with a cuppa and a slice. I'll come after you in a bit. The mousy man's sneeze follows her down the road. Hip, 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 hip. She turns back once, but her father has already disappeared. A cake sits on a tin stand in the window of the coffee shop which is otherwise indistinguishable from the run-down book dealers flanking it. Audrey looks at the cake, black as coke, on its dirty paper doily. A sign beside it contends, 10-ounce chop, sixpence. Cutlet, fivepence. Fried onion, a penny. That's all. A man comes from within to stand in the doorway, wound tightly into his apron, he's the same shape as the milk churn he sets down. He has thick black curly side whiskers and below his red cheek a redder goiter rests on his Gladstone collar. 
a barefoot piker boy comes limping along the lane, his cab pulled right down, the sleeves of his man's jacket rolled right up. His arms are all striped lining. In one hand, he holds a skinned rabbit by its ears. And stopping by the coffee shop man, he raises it, bloody socket where its guts were, but says nothing. The man shakes his head in a pig's ass. The boy limps on. Come in and eat before we both starve. It's a while before Audrey realises he's addressing her and then she complies. There's nothing much to the coffee shop. Four pew seats, two rickety tables. Everything is coated with the brownish patina of tobacco smoke, grease and ingrained dirt. The gaslight and the geezer are confused in one another's piping. Both are lit. The man asks Audrey what she wishes for, and while he is absent in the back, the geezer heats up and begins to steam. Droplets condense on the ceiling, then fall, one hissing on the gas mantle. It's raining inside. She opens her hand. The threepence has impressed a portcullis on her palm. The man comes back with a mug of tea and two slices of bread and marge, sliced diagonally. Oh, I don't know why I does that, he says, looking at the droplets swell and fall. But I always do. He turns the key in the pipe and the geezer pops off. Could I? Is there? There can be no mistaking, surely, the reason for her discomfort. He points off-handedly and says, Jake's is out back. She goes and finds a lean-to against the kitchen wall. Beyond it, another section of the two-storey high timber bulwark. And beyond this, the wrecker's ball hangs in the foggy dusk. A black moon. When she returns, he's lit the geezer again. And as she nibbles the slices and sips the tea, he stands erect by the matchboard counter, head up, massaging the goiter while doggily listening to its rising notes. There's no arm in him. All that's left are crumbs, smears, dregs. Still, her father does not come. Abruptly, Audrey rises from the pew. The man gives her a penny and two farthings change, which she holds so tightly as she walks back up the road that the metal discs replace her knuckles. Enigmarelle! The man of steel. There's no one about except a tall gent in a topper who reminds her of an illustration she's seen of Bransby Williams, the personator, so cross-hatched is he by shadow. Fellows' shop is shuttered, tapping fearfully on the door. She's relieved and it swings open, so scurries in to the smell of mouse droppings, cat's piss, and the ammoniacal residue of birds. Inside there's no illumination at all, only different strengths of darkness, the black bat night brushing against her. She mounts the stairs to the accompaniment of a concerto of creaks, one flight, a second, a third and a fourth, 
then peaks along a landing at eye level to where bright white light leaks from beneath a closed door. She hears in there a sharp intake of breath <gasps> and a piggish grunt. A belly seethes with glowworms. Last month, Mary Jane fixed me up with cotton pads and an itchy belt sewn from hemming tape when Audrey pointed out to her the advertisement in the back of a free library book, sanitary, absorbent, antiseptic, available from all drapers, her mother snapped, what do you think we are? But not unkindly. A cord that stretches taut from her tummy button along the landing and under the door draws her in with each, <gasps> every pickish grunt. She barges the door with her shoulder and collapses into a room lit brilliantly by clear bulbs under shades of frosted glass. In front of floor-length nankeen drapes and aspidistra in a hammered bronze pot. Beside this, a chaise long covered in green velvet. On this, the skinned rabbit, what the piker had, its glistening dead legs sticking up from a mess of petticoats, standing with his back to Audrey. A bare-arsed man does something to the rabbit's belly. Gutting it? No, no, no! That won't do! A florid man with pomaded hair in his shirt sleeves and a fancy embroidered waistcoat comes out from behind a kinematographic apparatus set up in the tapering corner of the attic. No, no, no! He cries again. His expression is mad and guileless. This here girl, he's torn it! Mr Beauregard, Audrey ventures, but the red-faced man ignores her. His regard is fixed. When Audrey turns back, there's no coney, only a, only a girl a little older than her who sits on the chaise, buttoning her bubbies into her bodice. The girl's hair is up, apart from a few stray locks, and atop its nondescript mass sits a lady's toque, complete with magenta-dyed ostrich feathers. There's no bare-arsed man either, only Audrey's father, who's standing there in his long rabbit-skin coat and buttoning up gloves I've never seen before. He doesn't acknowledge his daughter, but raises his bowler to Mr Beauregard, says, Au revoir, my dear, to the girl, and retrieving his umbrella and a brown paper parcel from behind the drapes, conducts Audrey unceremoniously from the room. Okay, so that's umbrella. A couple of other things in the text. No, you know, paratextual detritus. None of what Joyce called perverted commas. In umbrella, you'll find a kind of uh, typology of sort of punctuation system that's like a kind of mutation of Victorian punctuation. So I got very interested in obsolete forms of punctuation like the comash, comma dash formations, where the comma and N and M dashes, just using N and M dashes really to put a lot of air into the text because, as you probably imagined, 
since I could no longer write sentences like, she went to the cafe, I was also beginning to find things like chapters very problematic. My life doesn't have chapters, I don't know about you. You know, I mean, I find all of that as problematic as plot, really, because my life doesn't have a plot either. I don't know about yours. And I can't discern any plot in the world about me if it were to be conceived of uh, in terms of the traditional Victorian novel, which, of course, always usually pivots on a coincidence. You know, Oliver chips up in London. First guy he bumps into happens to be his granddad. Who'd have thunk it? in what was, after all, the first anonymous city of the contemporary Western era. So, yeah, the new punctuation system, particularly the Selenian ellipsis, which I, I always was obsessed it with since reading Voyage au bout de la nuit and Morte Crédit when I was in my early 20s, again. Um, and, and what else? A lot of use of, of italics that have caused critics and, and academic reviewers have exercised them a bit. When I read the passage, hopefully you see what they're about. They're the voices. And again, yeah, it's full of, of imagery and, and full of metaphor in a sense, but it's not constructed metaphor. When I said we don't see metaphors, we don't think in metaphors, we don't think in constructed metaphors. We do think metaphorically. We do experience the world and we experience the kind of commonsensical world wreathed, it seems to me, rather like a sort of Ballardian conceit in many, or like a sort of um, uh, Bridge photo from the 19th century, you know, kind of wreathed with these afterimages. Again, Ballard was obsessed by the fact that photography is always, of course, chronography as well, like Bridges. And, um, yeah, got rid of, of chapters... I had some paragraphs. I had about 12 paragraphs in this novel, I think, and a even a couple of section breaks. And when I got to the second novel of the trilogy, I did away with that. It was a continuous thread of text, and, and that continued on into the third book, in, into Phone. And hopefully there was stuff in that passage that you thought, I don't know what that's about. I don't know that word. I don't know what the reference is. I don't know who Bransby Williams, the personator, is. Uh, you might have got the little kind of grace note that she sees the guy as being this famous impersonator of, of the period. Actually, his main impersonation, so it's a literary joke, was Dickens. That's what he did. He did a shtick, this guy, in the early 1900s where he did an act as Dickens. She sees him, having seen illustrations of him of the period, as cross-hatched, like, like an engraving of the period, not like a photograph. The time period, significant, 1902. They're actually going from Charing Cross in London across and into something called Hollywell Street, which was the pornography quarter of late Victorian, early Edwardian London. So her father, for some reason, is going to meet an early film pornographer who's actually filming a porno with a kinetograph. And you've got the kind of parallelism between he shows his daughter the kinetoscope. Theatres of the period would advertise their productions with a little short film in a little machine you could stick your head in in the foyer and then look at it. That's the Commedia dell'arte she sees at the beginning. And then, of course, she sees a porno being filmed. 
at the end. Those rookeries, as they were called, uh, it was called Little Dublin, the area to the east of Covent Garden. Uh, the last, that was the last one, and we're talking about domestic housing that was 400 years old at that point. So the city, London, would have had an incredibly different feel at that time. I wanted to try and get that and get the cusp of modernity. When she goes out to find the outhouse from the little cafe where she's waiting, she sees the wreckers ball because all of this is being demolished right then. And it's being demolished. If you've ever been to London, you've probably been to the Aldwych or the Strand or Kingsway. And, and Kingsway and the Aldwych, which is a Crescent development, are the last major road development in central London. They're over 100 years ago now. The Kingsway was such an exciting innovation, complete with its uh, tram tunnel under the roadway that's still there and unused, that um, Elgar's wife, Elgar and his wife, composed a song of, to celebrate the building uh, of the Kingsway. And a lot of the inspiration for the trilogy really came from this strange apprehension. It relates very strongly to, to modernism. That really in 1902, London was about as modern as it ever, ever was and ever will be. It was at the height of modernity. It was the most modern city in the world. It had the kinetoscopes outside the theatres and the guys making early film pornography. You can find photographs of you know, uh, women wearing expansive crinolines with bustles and men with top hats taking tubes, the, the underground tube trains from Tottenham Court Road. The deep level tube system in London opened in 1901, 1902. So you have instant communication of stock prices by telegraph between the Bourse, Wall Street and the Stock Exchange in London. Uh, you have the first great era of globalization. Uh, and, and you have really, in a way, the rudiments of what Marshall McLuhan referred to as the unified electrical field, which he saw as coming fully into being in the 1920s. A suite of technologies, to bring you full circle on my disquisition tonight, that bear some relation to a proto-form of bi-directional digital media, okay? Film, yeah, radio, telegraph, together with the railway system, the beginnings of a fully integrated possible network of augmentation and simulation of reality, a platform for virtualization and instantaneity. Uh, a device for building a permanent now, for creating a stalled zeitgeist in that way. Um, so I, it occurred to me, really, that this high point of modernity, at least for London in, in the early 20th century, and then I was very influenced as well by Paul Fussell, the literary critic uh, and one-time United States Army colonel, unusual career, literary criticism and combat. I don't know how many of you have managed to pretend to that. But Fussell's book, The Great War and Modern Memory, so if you're not familiar with it, Fussell's theory is that, that in between August 1914, when the great armies marched off to war, uh, you know, dulce decorum est pro patria mori, 
uh, and uh, you know, 1915, when they were bogged down in the hell of Verdun, and even by 1915, more French soldiers had been killed in that single year than the entire number of Allied troops in the Second World War. You know, that Fussell says, you know, this is the great ironic reversal that, that, that stands uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. This is this kind of hole into a, a darkness and an absurdity that humanity had never really kind of encountered before. Uh, and then I think it was the kind of parallelism building on Fussell's insight and on this idea of, of the absolute modernity in London of the early 1900s of what I call the production line of death that was spontaneously assembled uh, across Flanders, right across France, and right to the Swiss border, where the assemblage of trench systems and 50-caliber machine guns uh, with, with wide traverses combined to produce an uncanny, uncanny parallel with Henry Ford's production line for the Model T, which went into operation only six years previously. So here is the instrumentality of technology being allied to the psychopathology, working in this trialectic with the uh, collective psychopathology, the death drive of humanity, uh, to produce these kinds of assembly lines of death. And that's really where the trilogy of novels took flight, to start viewing the 20th century as a series of these interactions uh, between technology, psychopathology, and warfare, and to suggest really that the history of the 20th century really went in two main phases, up to the 6th of August 1945, really from August 1914, and then on into the present. Uh, how are we doing for time? Ten minutes and then go to questions? Yeah. Well, I've got quite enough time to tell you everything I'd like to tell you, but, you know, hopefully life is long. Um, the second novel, Shark, uh, I wanted to, to build on this idea of, of ironic reversal and of, you know, the particular form of collective psychopathology in the 20th century and... and, and you know, I, I stumbled across something, a sort of relationship between mediatization and reality that, that fascinated me. I'd, I'd been thinking about a very different book, but I ended up writing this one, really because of a kind of throwaway line or throwaway little scene in, in Steven Spielberg's film Jaws, in which the, uh, the grizzled shark fisherman played by Robert Shaw, interestingly one of the few Hollywood actors to have won a significant literary prize with a collection of short stories. Uh, not a lot of people know that. Uh, so if you remember the scene, Robert Shaw is the fisherman Quint, uh, Richard Dreyfus is Hooper, the marine biologist, and Roy Schneider is uh, police chief Brody. They're hunting the, the terrible shark, and Hooper uh, spots that, that Quint has a tattoo and asks him about the tattoo, and he says it's, you know, it's the USS Indianapolis. And Hooper asks, says, you were on the Indianapolis, because he knows about the story. And Quint tells him, the Quint character tells him a bit about the Indianapolis. Actually, in Spielberg's film, 
they don't quite tell it right, but it's a cracking tale. The Indianapolis, the USS Indianapolis, was the uh, US naval cruiser that delivered the uh, uranium payloads for Little Boy and Big Boy, the atomic bombs that were dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. It sailed from San Francisco for Tinian Island straight across the Pacific in, in July of 1945 uh, and, and took this material and the bomb casings to Tinian Island and then sailed on and was due in the Philippines but was kind of lost. It, it moved both literally and figuratively off the radar didn't arrive uh, in the Philippines on time. Nobody knew what was going on. And what had happened was that uh, in the last sinking by a Japanese submarine during the war at all, uh, shortly after the first bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, the Indianapolis was torpedoed by a, a Japanese submarine uh, and sank very, very, very quickly, putting 900 young men into the water where they remained for three days being eaten by sharks. Uh, it's the biggest recorded shark attack in human history. So if you ever read my novel, Shark, you can join in. <laughs> uh, I thought that was an extraordinary tale. It sort of matched in my mind. It seemed somehow weirdly congruent with the ironic reversal of the First War as well. But it seemed very... It seemed to me that in a way, you know, maybe Mother Earth was kind of meeting a weird kind of collective punishment on humankind for the bomb that had gone off a few days before. Um, but I also think that post, everything changed in the world after the 6th of August 1945. I think every single human being who was born after the 6th of August 1945 was born into a what Gregory Bates and the anthropologist and, and psychological thinker called the double bind. And he developed this in relation to human psychology. He sort of said that, you know, you can be put in a position where you're receiving two powerfully contradictory messages and it basically paralyzes you. You, you become incapable of action. R.D. Lang, the anti-psychiatrist built on this theory, uh, you know, to explain, he, he viewed it as an origin of schizophrenia. He felt that, you know, if a parent, you know, says to a child, I love you, enough like that, the child is receiving two contradictory messages, and eventually he has to invent his own narrative to circumvent that. And it, the narrative may be psychosis, because to get out of this impossible double bind, it may be necessary to go in a completely other direction. So my theory that I develop in Shark is that we have all been born into a double bind since this, because our governments, who in theory might conceivably be benevolent, have nonetheless stockpiled the means of our own destruction. They're big mummies and big daddies that are telling us that they love us while threatening us with absolute annihilation. So through each of the three novels, in a sense, you get a different iteration of this kind of, for want of a better term, cosmic snafu that humanity seems to find itself in. But I also tend to think of the 20th century as a series of these kind of, I think of them as sucker punches. You know, Marx writes in the 18th Brumaire of Louis Napoleon that history always repeats itself. You know, first... Uh, you know, as tragedy and then as farce. But I think Marx so often gets it the wrong way around. 
The truth of the matter is history uh, happens first as farce and then as out-and-out tragedy. And, and, and it may seem strange to think of Hiroshima and the Holocaust and the hell of the trenches in the First World War as farcical, but look what's coming down the line now. And it may seem odd to speak of McLuhan's unified electrical field or Baudrillard's The Simulacrum, or Guy Debord's The Spectacle, all of which these theorists dated to the late 1920s as being a farcical forerunner of the tragedy that bidirectional digital media represents. But that's how I would be inclined to see it. And as I said at the outset, to think of modernism as only being a 20-year period is absolutely absurd. To return to Heidegger and his conception of technology, not as instrumental, but as a standing reserve, Heidegger, again, dates that new relationship between humanity and technology to the early part of the 20th century and understood what the consequences of it might be. And we're now about to live through the consequences of that change relationship with technology. Modernism is obviously the only proper artistic response to the condition of modernity. How could there be anything else? Anybody, when, it, when, you, when you've taken the modernist turn, the idea of sitting down to write a novel about people's love affairs is becomes utterly absurd. I mean, why would you do that? All right, that's enough of that. Ask me some questions. Thank you.